Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways big and small to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Scott Riley, too. Let's move the needle. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Moving the Needle. Recently, we explored some of the ideas surrounding research and education. After discussing the field with a broad scope, we kept talking and other questions started to emerge. What are commonly used quantitative and qualitative tools? How do they work? How can I use this in my field? I'm happy that Dr. Violet Kulo and Dr. Eric Belt have returned to offer their expertise in another discussion on education research. Dr. Kulo is an associate professor and program director for the MS in Health Professions Education program in UMB's graduate school. She was responsible for overseeing curriculum mapping, medical student assessment, and program evaluation in the preclinical curriculum. Dr. Kulo's research interests include instructional design, learner engagement, student assessment, and evaluation of innovative educational programs. Dr. Belt is a senior academic innovation specialist at UMB. In his role, he has taught courses and workshops centered on instructional design, interaction, engagement, and communication with technology. Welcome, Dr. Kulo. Welcome, Dr. Belt. Thank you both for lending your expertise on this topic. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here. So during our last conversation, we covered a range of concepts focused on educational research. Things like what is education research? What is learning theory? What to consider when constructing a study? And what tools are available for these studies? During that conversation, you both provided some examples of potential topics to study. I specifically remember wearable technology grabbing my attention. So I tried to piece together what a study would look like from the quantitative side and the qualitative side. I, I had some good ideas, but I felt like my designs were missing a lot of things. So I want to kick off our conversation today by providing a practical example that we can refer back to as we discuss some of the finer points of education research. The situation I came up with is Dr. Doe works in a teaching lab and they want to introduce a new lab into their rotation. The equipment's expensive and there aren't enough for the whole class to work on at the same time. So Dr. Doe really wants to ensure that the students are well prepared before entering the physical lab. After doing some reading, they discover some literature on instrument training with VR, wearable tech, and want to see if they can apply it to this lab. They acquire the necessary software that teaches the students how to use the equipment and a couple of VR headsets. The challenge is there's no literature for a lab setting or an instrument like this. So now Dr. Doe wants to conduct a research study to build confidence that this is beneficial for not only the lab in general, but the students as well. And previously we, we talked about quantitative and qualitative and mixed methods, and I want to really dive into what kinds of studies we can do with those methods. And so I'd like to start with uh, Violet. If we could just talk again briefly about what a quantitative tool for education research is, and then maybe dive into some of the available tools and studies that you can do quantitatively on a situation like this. Thank you for that question. So a quantitative tool is what the researcher uses to collect data. And, and the broad name for data collection tools is an instrument. So for quantitative research, there are mainly two types of instruments that a researcher could use based on the question one is trying to answer. 
for example, if you're conducting a, a research in the classroom with your students, you, uh, you can collect data using the end of semester exam or quizzes that administer, you administer during the semester. But also you can administer a survey. Uh, so for classroom tests, there is content validity, which is determined by the sub subject matter expert, who is the professor who is uh, developing the test. So to make sure that the test is actually measuring the content that was taught. Then after the test, an item analysis is conducted to get the reliability of the test, as well as the difficulty and discrimination of each question. So the hard questions that, that, that less than 50% of the class got wrong and also that had poor discrimination are usually deleted from the, from the scores. And poor discrimination means that the high scorers for the exam got the question wrong or the low scorers got the question correct. Then for survey questions, it starts with a literature review, development of the survey questions, then pilot testing the survey with a, a few uh, individuals. You administer the survey and collect data and then analyze the data. So, and the validation process for the, for the instruments, which this is the survey instrument, is conducted using uh, factor analysis. And uh, so this is done to determine the construct validity of the instrument. That, uh, that is the extent to which the instrument is measuring a certain construct or constructs within the instruments. So when you conduct um, like a factor analysis, the results show certain uh, questions like uh, group, grouping together. So that implies that those questions are measuring a, a certain construct. So for example, there's an instrument called an inter interprofessional questionnaire. And this might be a good instrument to use in a, like a campus such as ours, which is a health professions campus. So the constructs for these instruments are, are communication and teamwork, interprofessional learning, and interprofessional interaction. So the other part of uh, pro validating the instrument is the reliability of the, of the survey that uh, is determined by cal calculating the Kronberg's alpha of coefficient. And this measures how consistently the instrument reflects constructs that uh, it's measuring by giving the same score if used over time or if, if it's used across uh, different samples. Of both of these tools, the classroom exam and the survey, they have to meet a minimum reliability coefficient. So for, for example, the classroom test, it's a, a Kronbach's alpha of 0.70 is acceptable, but higher is better. But now for surveys, uh, a minimum reliability coefficient is recommended to be 0.80. So those are the main two uh, uh, instruments for quantitative research studies. Really interesting. And I want to pull a couple of things that you said out there that made me think of questions about these instruments, one of them being the kind of the, the pre-validation of the reliability of your survey. You mentioned that you would do a, a pilot study with a couple of students. If I'm new to the education research scene, how many students, and I know this could vary, but how many students should I be looking for to measure whether or not this survey I'm going to use in my research is effective. You know, are we talking five students, ten students? So I, I don't I don't know that there's a, a specific number, but I, but mostly I've seen like about ten students. So if you yeah, and if you're doing with a, a different sample, it's advisable to do uh, the pilot study with this sample that is com comparable to this actual sample that will take the survey when it's been uh, pilot tested. Okay. And then I'm also curious with the development of this survey or the exam, uh, 
it sounds like it could be an iterative process. If I don't hit the reliability number right off the bat, I could go back, like you said, modify some of the questions and try again. Uh, what are what are some of the things I should consider? Let's say I make the survey and it doesn't meet that. I think you said 0.7 factor that it needs to to make. What are some of the things that I can go back and reassess on so that I can improve my survey before the actual research begins? So one of the things is to see, like uh, I mentioned that there's, when you're doing a factor analysis, the questions that like hang together, so they mean it's, uh, they're measuring a certain construct. So there are some questions that do not meet certain criteria. criteria. So the factor analysis have, have, has criteria for questions that are good for the survey. So you can drop some questions that, are, that do not hang with other questions. So that, that means they're not measuring the construct you're trying to measure. So when you drop the, a question, it might improve the reliability or maybe like when you can modify the question, maybe it's not clear or uh, to the to the people who pilot tested. So you can either drop it completely or modify it, then you know, test it again to see whether the reliability improves. Okay, wonderful. So it sounds like what Dr. Doe could do in this situation is create a pre-survey and pre-exam to prepare students for using the equipment and really coming up with some things that they want to make sure the individuals learn afterwards from the experience. And then is there something that Dr. Doe could do afterwards to confirm that the intentions of the survey and the intentions of the experiment actually did come to some kind of measurable outcome. Well, what do we, what do we do after the pre-surveys and the uh, the exam? So for the exam, you, you run the item analysis. So the item analysis will t- will show you the data question by question to see how each student performed on that question. The Dr. Doe can drop some questions if they didn't perform well, and all and also maybe like um revise them and and the reliability might fluctuate from year to year because this these are different samples of students from class to class so every class will be different from the from the next class but as long as it's stable at above point seven and preferably point eight then it's acceptable so it, it's not always going to be the same a, a number a coefficient for each sample of students because these are different students who are coming through the, the course and, and that also applies to the surveys uh, when dr Dawes maybe does like a, a validation of the survey if they do it in different samples the coefficient the Cronbach's alpha might be different based, based on the sample but the point is it needs to be consistent so if it's consistently above eight, then the, the tool is valid to, to be used in other uh, uh, samples. Okay, great. I want to shift gears a little bit and discuss some of the types of studies that you could do quantitatively. Um, some of the things that I read were that there's descriptive types of studies, there's correlation studies, there's casual or causal comparative and experimental. What does this study sounds like it's falling under? To me, it sounds like it's an experimental study, but maybe you could shed some light on what you think it is. Okay, so there, there are various ways, uh, de- depending on what Dr. Doe wants to, uh, to investigate. So you, uh, they could do an experimental study, but for experimental, they might uh, group the students into three, say three groups. So one group of students will be trained using the VR equipment, then the other group might be trained using like a different mode of training, maybe a hands-on training. Then maybe say the third group will be given handout to read, just read about this equipment, how to use this equipment. 
then the Dr. Doe would run a study and compare like um and th so the the prompt was for Dr. Doe wants to see if this using this tool builds the student's confidence. So uh, so the instrument to use maybe maybe like a, a self-efficacy instrument. So you want to see general self-efficacy whether these instruments increased the student's confidence in using the equipment. And so the, the Dr. Doe would compare the self-efficacy scores for students in these three groups. So does the VR group have more confidence because they were trained using VR to use the instrument? Do they have more confidence than the ones who did a hands-on training and the ones who did who read about how to use the instrument? And so these disadvantages, these other two groups, because the one group uses the VR training, so they are at an advantage. So the Dr. Doe would just make sure that maybe later on after the study, these two group, these two other groups also get the get the training for VR, so they are at par with the other group. But also this could be an, an experimental study. So Dr. Doe wants all the students in the class to benefit from this training. So train all the students using the VR training, but also do a, like um, do like a self-efficacy survey uh, uh, for all the students. So this would be an, an experimental, and it's just it's descriptive. You give you're, you're giving percent, you know, like the change, like uh, if students say their self-efficacy improved. But for the first one. You would do like a, because it's an uh, it's experimental. Then you're you're doing like a, and maybe you randomly you randomly assign them to the three groups. So this is a true experiment because you randomly assign them. But if you do like a, a quasi a quasi experimental, then you don't randomly assign them. You, they can self select which group they want to to participate in. Okay, it sounds like there are a lot of things to consider, not only in what tool you use, but what kind of study you're going to conduct. You know, we're talking about comparative, correlational, experimental. Um, Dr. Kula, what skills do you think someone who would want to jump into the quantitative side of education research would need to be successful at working these studies? You would need statistical skills, but most importantly, the knowledge of how to design the study from beginning to the end. The first thing is it's important to ensure that there is alignment between the problem you're trying to solve, the purpose of the research, the research question, and the methods. And the methods inc include the research design, which we just discussed earlier, data collection, and data analysis plan. So let me just go through this real quick. So the problem is, uh, you know, maybe the students are not confident in the ability to use an expensive device. So the, the, the Dr. Doe wants to train them how to use it before they go actually into the lab. And then look at what the literature said, but uh, the scenario shows that there's little literature in this area. So that shows there's a gap in the literature that Dr. Doe would like to address. So the literature is not showing how to use this equipment and how it affects, impacts students' confidence. So the purpose of the study is to investigate whether it, uh, it builds students' confidence. Uh, okay, so the Dr. Doe would then uh, train these students using the VR set, then collect data using the survey. Then, so once you've done this, now that's the front end uh, of doing the study. Now comes to the data analysis part. So there's several steps that Dr. Doe would need to do and to have the skills to analyze the data. So some of the steps are do cleaning the data. So because the data all might have errors and that it might have like missing data. So for instance, if they have maybe a class of 100 students, not students might skip uh, filling out some of the surveys or they might just go 
agree, agree, agree in a, in a straight line. You see, you know, that's at times they may do that. So you have to clean the data to make sure there's no missing the data, there are no errors in the data. And at, if there's missing data, maybe some a student filled out only 10 questions and skipped the other 10, that is, uh, you, you, Dr. Doe would uh, delete that data set because it's, because it's, it's incomplete. Then the next thing is to conduct the descriptive statistics. So you want to see just the means and standard deviations of, you know, like of how the responses, students' responses. Then testing assumptions. This is a big step at every statistical test has assumptions it must meet. So for example, assumption of no extreme data outliers, you know, like maybe one student has like a very high score or another student has like a very low score. Those are really extreme outliers and so Dr. Doe would decide what do I do with these outliers. Most of the time they are deleted so there is the Dr. Doe would decide whether to delete or whether to include them but that needs to be explained in the data analysis portion like were there any extreme outliers and how were they handled. And so some other assumptions are like making sure the data are normally distributed. So you want to have like the data has like a normal bell curve shaped. So when all these assumptions are met, then you would run the main analysis. So for instance, if there were two, if there were three groups, of, uh, the first example had three groups for the experimental study. That, so the, the difference in groups would be like a, 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 a one-way analysis of variance. But you have, if you have two groups, then you would do like a, a t-test, like comparing an independent sample t-test to compare the two groups. Then of course there's the writing up the findings in the correct format, reporting all the statistical tests in the correct format and interpreting what they mean. So it's it's a it's a, a it's a whole uh, need, you need knowledge and skills to to conduct to plan the study and from the problem what the problem is you're trying to solve and how what what's the, the what's the research question and how to analyze the data. So the 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 most important thing is to make sure there's alignment from the problem statement to data analysis. Well, that was a great bird's eye view of all the skills that you would need to do a strong quantitative study for education research. Thanks so much, Violet. My pleasure. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about qualitative tools now. So Eric, would you be willing to explain what the qualitative methods are from our previous discussion and mention or talk a bit more about their framework and how they can be used to help Dr. Doe maybe come up with a research question that's qualitative and then solve that question or come up with a conclusion for the question. So I think last time we talked, we talked about five qualitative research methods. And there are, I think there have, and there always will be more. Um, I just tend to gravitate toward uh, Creswell and Poth at 2018. They kind of broke it down into five approaches. And I think they were just saying that these are, we see these a lot. These are probably most common or acceptable forms of qualitative research. And there's, there's not a whole lot of, I'd say that each framework or method, I should say, each method um, has certain distinctions that sort of make it that method. Um, but there are, I'd say there's, you, there are different schools of thought um, when it comes to literature reviews or incorporating theory or things like that. Uh, an example would be in grounded theory. Some would argue that a person doing a grounded theory study shouldn't look at the literature at all. 
and conduct their study. And then at the end, take a look at what they found. You know, they don't want to be sort of, I guess, uh, tainted by the literature. And they want to develop a, a theory from the data that they collected without being influenced by anything. So the other approaches, uh, we talked about narrative, phenomenology, grounded theory, ethnography, and case study. So each of these kind of has its own unique characteristics or purposes, and it sort of aligns, like what Violet was talking about, alignment is important. You want to have your research question aligned to your research methodology um, and even your data collection method and your analysis. So a narrative is really trying to capture the story of an individual experience. So with Dr. Doe, maybe you just want to take a deep dive and sort of restory students A, right? And just sort of tell their story. What is their experience in this process? And create a narrative account of, it could be the whole process from course registration up to entering a virtual reality simulation with a headset on. Um, so you just want to tell their story. Uh, a phenomenology is a little different. And what you're trying to do is describe the essence of a lived experience. So what that means is I want to I wanna, uh, describe, let's say I put my VR headset on in Dr. Doe's class and I'm going to interview these students and I ask them, could you tell me what it was like in that world? Very open ended. Um, and just they use their own words and they describe their experience. And I try to get at what they are saying, right? Really break it down to the essence. And then there's, I mean, there's like, there's a lot of, uh, I'm very, I'm simplifying this in a lot of ways. <laughs> like it's much more complicated, but uh, you're just trying to boil it down to what this experience is. Um, you can get into lived body, lived space, lived time. And I think that's very interesting when it comes to virtual reality, because we tend to know these things from a phenomenological perspective in the concrete, in the real world. So if you had put on a VR headset, you know, all of a sudden, do we have a shared atmosphere between teacher and student? Is this my lived body? You know, you know, is this an avatar? Is that is my avatar my lived body? You know, it kind of creates some interesting questions. Um, we talked a little bit about grounded theory with that. Maybe I want to develop a theory of how students learn optimally in virtual reality in Dr. Doe's class. So I just want to interview all the students. I want to collect that data and then I'm going to break it down through constant comparative analysis where I am sort of coding, I'm theming and I'm just breaking it down until there's no more new or emergent right, it reaches data saturation, right? No new ideas are coming out. So then I can kind of put together a framework. Um, ethnography might, it'd be interesting to do an ethnography for virtual reality, but what you're trying to do is you, you're, you're trying to describe and interpret the shared patterns of a group or a, a culture. Um, so it could be as an ethnographer, and you, the way you go about this is usually through observation. So it would be interesting in Dr. Doe's virtual reality environment if you were in your avatar, I guess, in a classroom, and you just sat in the corner and observed the other avatars interacting with each other. 
and you try to get at just the interpret and describe how students in virtual reality interact with one another in virtual reality. Um, and then the last one's case study. So this is, you really wanna take a deep dive into a case or multiple cases. And this could be an individual, a small group, an organization, a partnership. It could be even a community, a relationship, a decision process, or like a specific project. I think that the hallmark of case study is that it's bounded by time and space. So you kind of have to put some edges around what you are studying. Um, so for, yeah, I mean, you could look at any one of those things. You could do a case study of multiple different students in virtual reality, and you can compare those cases. So you're looking at a small group or just individuals and comparing their experiences and things like that. Um, or you could look at the decision process of students in virtual reality. Um, that'd be interesting, I think. You know, how I feel like it must be kind of trying to orient yourself to like, I, I don't know, something kinesthetic, but it's not the same process that's happening in your mind. So it's a little, I don't know, distorted, I guess. Um, anyway, so those are some examples. Wow, that's such a departure for me as a scientist from like when Dr. Kula was speaking about the quantitative side, I was like, yes, I understand all this. And now we're talking about these more nebulous, to me at least, nebulous or cerebral concepts of student perception, subpopulation, uh, behavior, things like that. And so you may have touched on this, but uh, I'd like you to expand on it a bit more if you can. What are some of the outcomes from these types of studies and how could they be applied in future education? I guess, you know, how it can be used. There's not a direct correlation. I think Lincoln and Guba tried to put this in different terms, but when we talk about quantitative research, we're always, you know, we're looking for validity and things of that nature. So how does rigor play out in qualitative research? We look for more of trustworthiness, um, maybe this is a bad expression, but like trueness to the method. Um, you let the data sort of lead you at times. Um, you look for transferability. So, so, you know, I could do a case study of students in a virtual reality lab well, like Dr. Doe, and maybe I read the findings of that study, and I'll say, well, I'll give that a whirl in my classroom. So now I've, you know, now there's a future study that's being built off one. It's not necessarily that it's the exact same line of inquiry that's being advanced study by study, but it's um, advancing our understanding of teaching and learning in these environments. So w with that in mind, what would you say are the skills that someone would want to hone or develop to be a successful qualitative researcher in the education space? Some of the skills I think that are most important, I can think of three, adaptability, reflexivity, and commitment to the process. So adaptability in that it's sort of the best laid plans. So when I develop a qualitative research proposal, I might have thought this out to the best of my ability and I have it all mapped out. And after I get through the first interview or I, I'm observing something, I'm taking my first field note, I'm writing an analytic memo or something after an interview, things like that, I realize I'm not really asking the right questions or I'm, 
what I'm proposing to research isn't necessarily being answered with this method. Or so you have to adapt to the situation and make changes. Uh, you have to let the data lead you at times, um, if not the whole time, I guess. That would probably be the best way. <laughs> um, so there's adaptability. Reflexivity, I believe, is acknowledging yourself in the research process. So we kind of come to accept that I have experiences in this world and I'm part of this research process. None of this would happen unless I conceptualized the research question and started interviewing students or what have you. And my bias is already there. Uh, you know, in a lot of other types of studies, we try to eliminate our bias. And I think that in this type of study, we're just really acknowledging it and being reflexive about the process. How might my interpretation or my experience with technologies or my um, socio-cultural background or, or things like that influence what I'm the questions I'm asking, um, how I'm analyzing the data, uh, how I'm reporting the findings, things like that. So it's it's that I'm a part of it from from A to Z, and I need to be reflexive throughout that process, and then. The commitment to the process, I think of this as like a method actor, right? If you're going to do a grounded theory study, you got to commit to that process. Um, if you're going to do a phenomenology, you have to, there's like each one of these, you have to really commit. If I'm going to do an ethnography, I need to go live in Australia for two years to try to study this small group of people. I need to commit to it. Uh, so it's, I think those are kind of, three skills. Um, so yeah, commitment, reflexivity, adaptability. With that last example, I'm very much sold on the skills for qualitative <laughs> research. I have to go live, you know, in Australia for two years to make sure I'm committed to the process. I think I'll do a study in uh, Hawaii or New Zealand, right? <laughs> it's probably, probably a bad example, but the, no. it's, it's like, I forget, is it Jane Goodall, the anthropologist who was, did the studies of apes or something like that? I think that's right. Yeah, that's the idea, right? You really, you're, you're committing to this and it could take time. And yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, I guess you'd have to be willing to commit a little bit of time to any one of these five research approaches. So now that we have better understanding of both the quantitative approach and the qualitative approach, we're, we're going to now kind of mix it all up and talk about mixed methods. Uh, if mixed methods are an approach where you pair both quant and qual tools together, is is Dr. Doe's scenario appropriate for a mixed methods approach? Um, and how does one determine which tools to pick from both categories? This is for both of you. Uh, Violet, if you could start. It goes back to the question. So what are you trying to answer? So the mixed method approach is suitable when a quantitative approach by itself cannot is, is inadequate to answer the question. The scenario said that Dr. Doe wants to see if the using the instrument after the training will build the student's confidence. So Dr. Doe might want to do both if they, if they, if they feel that just quantitative alone, like doing a self-efficacy survey is not a, um, enough. So they, they might uh, administer the survey, but they may, might also do a phenomenology to, to, 
talk to the students. How how was was your experience when you're in the virtual world? So just it depends on what they want, what question they want to answer. And so using both will yield a rich set of data because you can triangulate to see whether the, the quantitative data is, agrees with the qualitative data. Eric, do you have anything you want to add to that? I would say I agree with Violet in that when it comes to mixed methods research, a lot stems from the research question that you're asking and that alignment piece. Uh, maybe you could get into sort of ontology or epistemology when it comes to, you know, is this research method appropriate? You don't want to do it just for the sake of doing it. I think that there's a common like this will enhance the quality of my research. I remember in grad school, like me and all of my fellow students wanted to do a mixed method study because we felt we are committed to this process. We are going to do studies. We're going to change the world. We're going to do mixed methods because that is the most robust way to examine whatever. And you come to realize that it takes a lot of time, right? And you know, and from a qualitative research perspective, each one of those fives that I was talking about, they are intense on their own. So I think what often happens in mixed methods is you have a survey and there may be, you know, an outlier or something. There might be a quantitative piece where you're just collecting some information. Maybe you find an outlier. I think Violet was mentioning outliers in the statistics part of it or whatever. Maybe you want to talk to those outliers. Was it just a bad day? You know, what, what happened? Um, and try to really understand why there was such a, a variation. And the stats aren't doing so much for you. So you want to just want to do a, an interview with them afterwards and ask them some questions, some follow-up. And, you know, in those ways, I'm sort of doing mixed methods. I'm mixing a quantitative with a qualitative approach to interviewing and talking to students. Yeah, so I agree with Eric. There are four uh, research designs for mixed methods. So depending on what the question Dr. Doe wants to answer, they can use one of any of these. So like a convergent design where they're collecting both quantitative and qualitative data at the same time. And then there's also an embedded design, which is similar to convergent, but one of them, either quantitative is the dominant one or the qualitative is the uh, dominant method. Uh, those two are maybe when you're doing the, the, collecting data at the same time, that may move faster than the other two me methods. One of them is called explanatory sequential design, where you start you, co you collect the quantitative data first, and if, like Eric said, if you want to talk to those outliers, then you do the qualitative. Then the other one, the fourth one, is the, the exploratory sequential design, where you start to, you with qualitative to explore the data. Then after you analyze the data, you, you, uh, you collect quantitative. So this, the, the last two take more time because you, you finish one, analyze data, and then do the next one. Wonderful. So the two things that I'm taking away from this discussion is that mixed methods can provide you deeper and broader insight into the field or question that you're studying. But the second part to it is that you need to be intentional about it. Doing it just to say that you're doing mixed methods will likely cause way more problems for you if you didn't design the study to be mixed methods to begin with. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. Awesome. Thank you both so much for conversing with me about education research today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl. To hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, 
or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.